Revelation 4, uh, 1 through 6 today. It's titled, The Throne in Heaven. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what, you, what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne st stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. All right, thanks, Linda. Go ahead and be seated. Hello again. We are in the middle of our teaching series through uh, the great and mysterious and often confusing book of Revelation. Uh, Revelation is uh, pretty easy to find, right? It's the last book of the Bible. Uh, and we have been working our way through this book, noting that the word revelation comes from the Greek apocalypsis which literally translates to unveiling. And so the whole purpose of this book, the whole purpose of this teaching series is to sort of pull back the curtain and unveil to us what God is really doing, how God is truly at work and the difference that his victory makes, the difference that the victory of him makes not only in history for his glory, but also for his church. Let me pray for us, and then we'll go ahead and get, get started in our text. Uh, Father, I'm grateful for your word, grateful for this church family. And I pray, God, that um, our hearts would be open uh, to being molded and changed by you, that we would humbly acknowledge that, that maybe the view that we have of you and our understanding that we have of your throne um, is just probably not big enough. As we spend a short time on a big truth, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation on all our hearts would be pleasing to you, God. You are our rock and our redeemer. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So there is this classic story by Frank Baum called uh, The Wizard of Oz. Probably heard of it, right? How many of you have heard of the story called The Wizard of Oz? Right Now, whether Frank Baum meant it or not, it's actually a timely parable, I think, of our, what we might call a post-Christian age, all right? Uh, what this, this, this movement, this era that's defined by self-helpism, right? The plot of The Wizard of Oz is you've got our main characters, Dorothy, the lion, Tin Man, and Scarecrow, and they set out on this great journey to get help from a higher power known as The Wizard of Oz. 
The tin man, he needs help because he, he wants a heart, right? The lion longs for courage. The scarecrow wants a brain. And Dorothy, man, she just wants to get home. She's not in Kansas anymore. She wants to go home. And when they finally arrived at the gates of the great Emerald City, enter that city to meet the great Wizard of Oz, what they discover is that this, this legendary wizard is really no wizard at all, right? He's just this grand illusion behind a screen of flashing lights, and trembling sounds. And each hero in the story finds out that the one thing that they were searching for, they either had already gained on the journey or had had all along. The tin man learned to love. The lion risked. The scarecrow thought. And Dorothy, turns out, had the ability to go home the whole time. Kind of messed up, right? <laughs> and at the end, you find out that they really didn't need that fool behind the curtain. Now, throughout history, throughout history, the message that the church has brought to the world has always been met with these competing messages. The competing message today which also existed in the first century, which is the context uh, of our, our book that we're reading. The competing message today is that God has nothing to offer that we just can't get on our own. God, as we call him, he's like the great Oz. He's a fraud at worst, a fool at best, and what we really need can just be found inside of us. And the purpose of the book of Revelation, again, is to unveil the truth. Reveal the truth for us while we're being bombarded by these competing messages to unveil what is really going on in the universe. That behind the messages that the early church was receiving of all these competing gospels, behind the persecution that they endured, behind the disasters and hard things that we go through throughout history, behind global pandemics and political strife, behind competing worldviews, here's what's really going on. Here's what's really going on. Revelation tells us that God is bigger than you think he is. He's more in control than you might assume. And we're not as self-sufficient as perhaps you've been told. I mean, in the last century, our species, like we've gone to space, we've invented the personal computer. We somehow found a way to put that computer into our pockets and smartphones. We invented the internet through Al Gore, right? We, 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 dude, I was reading this news, news uh, article this week that says that uh, apparently like we're, we're now on the verge of like cloning the woolly mammoth. Did anybody see that? 
How wild is that? We're on the verge, like they, they found DNA uh, of, of a woolly mammoth that obviously it's got, some, it's, it's got some pieces missing to it. And so they're like, oh, like let's just mix that with, with lizard DNA and then we'll, we'll, or, or some other animal DNA and like we'll, we'll, we'll be able to, to, to clone uh, a woolly mammoth. They're guessing that we're going to have our first woolly, woolly mammoth in the next like 15 years. It's like, dude, that's literally the plot from Jurassic Park, right? Remember, you saw Jurassic Park like in, in the 90s, and you were like, dude, that would be so crazy if they could actually do that. And in my lifetime, they're actually doing that. And we're in this place where as a species, we're like, man, look at us. Is there anything that we can't do? And then the relevance of the things of God seem to fade over time. And that's why it's fitting for us, I think, to dig into passages like the one we're looking at this morning in Revelation 4. Because in Revelation 4, we have a change of scene here, all right? Revelation 2 and 3, uh, well, Revelation 1, rather, let's go back a step, was where, where Jesus appears to the Apostle John, who's writing the book, who's writing the book of Revelation. Jesus appears to him in all his glory. And then he says to John, he says, hey, I've got this letter for these seven churches. These seven churches, which would represent all the churches throughout history. And he says, write these words down to them. And that's what we've basically been looking at for the last seven weeks is the letter to these seven churches. And now here in Revelation 4, there's a change of scenery. In Revelation chapters 4 and 5, we now have this unveiled image of God and his throne. Now, admittedly, there are limits to how we understand that word throne, like today, right? We don't have monarchies like they did back then. But for early Christians, there was no confusion about that. All right? There's no confusion about that. That word throne was a word that would signify sovereign rule, absolute control, complete authority. It's a symbol of the absolute, universal, comprehensive, all supreme sovereignty of God. That's what the throne means in Revelation. From this throne, all the stars receive their orders. From this throne, all the galaxies give their allegiance. From this throne, everything holds together in perfect motion. From the smallest little quark to the greatest supernova. This throne is the throne that's going to cause genuine awe in every human being and consume every expression that we have of our self-sufficiency. And so this transition from Revelation 2 and 3 into Revelation 4 and 5 is where we now begin to look at the throne. Now, it's important for you to know that this transition from chapter 3 to chapter 4 is not a sequence in time, all right? And so what I mean by that is that what we read about in Revelation chapter 4 does not happen on a timeline after chapter 3. Revelation 2 and 3 told us what's happening on the ground amongst the churches. 
And Revelation 4 and 5 now doesn't happen after that, but it's actually Revelation 4 and 5 is a zooming out. All right? Does that make sense? So what we're reading about in, in Revelation 4 and 5 is, is an image, uh, uh, a scene that exists in Revelation 2 and 3 behind the scenes and that still exists today, all right? So we're, given, we're zooming out to give us like a panoramic view of what's been happening this whole time as we're going on through Revelation. And so what that means is that what is true in these next two chapters, what we read about in Revelation chapter 4 and 5 was true and happening for the first century church and it's still happening today. It's true throughout history. So when we read Revelation 4 and 5, we're not reading about something that's already happened. We're not reading about something that's about to happen. We're reading a reality that is being unveiled for us that we can rest in right now. And for the churches that we read the letters, their letters uh, in, in chapter 2 and 3, churches that were feeling pressure to give up, churches that were maybe feeling pressure to renounce Jesus. These people, these Christians, these churches needed a renewed encounter with reverence and awe before the throne of God. That's what they needed. And I think we need that too. So, the big idea, I'm just going to give it to you on the front end of our sermon, is that God is the sovereign king whose glory and majesty are unmatched, and therefore he, is, he alone is worthy of our trust and worship. That's the sentence we're unpacking today, that God is the sovereign king whose glory and majesty are unmatched and unparalleled, and he alone is worthy of our trust and worship. Point number one we see from our text, beginning in Revelation chapter 4, is that God is the sovereign king. Let's talk about what that means. God is the sovereign king. Look at Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. It says, after this, John is speaking, and he says, after this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Now, really quick, when he talks about heaven, He's not talking about a geographic place, all right? When he uses this word heaven, because like, sometimes when the Bible talks about heaven, it talks about like the skies, or he uses heaven to describe the stars. But here, that word heaven is not a geographical place, but it's a symbol for where God dwells. It's a place, if we can even call it that, that exists outside the created realm, all right? where heavenly realities are being described plainly to us. And so John says, after, after this, after Jesus spoke to him about these letters, he says, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Now, if you remember when, 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 when John says a voice that's like a trumpet, he's talking about a voice that is glaring, a voice that is loud, a voice that comes with authority. He's talking about the voice of Jesus Christ. 
That's how we describe Jesus' voice in Revelation chapter 1. And so he's talking about the voice of Jesus here. And what does the voice of Jesus say to John? It says to come up here. Come up here to do what? To see what must play, take place after this. Now, what, might take, what must take place after this? When he says that, Jesus is referring to what's known as the last days. Right, you've heard that phrase in the Bible before, right? The last days. That is a phrase that is being borrowed here in Revelation and taken from the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. And this is important for you to know that in the Bible, whenever you see the phrase, the last days or the last times, what that refers to clearly is the time that is after the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? It's the time between the first and second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, I actually have a chart for this. Do you have that? Okay, cool. So check this out. Uh, chart. All right. So the first coming of Jesus, that's when Jesus came at the Christmas story, right? 2,000 years ago, he, he lived, he ministered, he died and rose, and then he ascended on high to heaven, right? And when he ascended, he sent his Holy Spirit down to the churches, right? Or to the Christians, to, to fill up Christians, to, to fill them with the Holy Spirit. And from that point on, the age uh, or the era that exists is called the church age, also known as the last days, also known as the millennium. Right? And you might be surprised to hear this, but the millennium is actually not a literal 1,000-year reign, uh, but it's a symbolic time. It's a symbolic time uh, that of the church age, right? This age where Jesus has come on high, and he's reigning from his throne currently, right? And, and, and that time from his ascension all the way until the time that he returns, which is known as the, his second coming, when he comes to bring the final judgment, the time between those two uh, uh, points on like the timeline is called the last days, all right? And after that is where we have the new heavens and the new earth. Now, some of you might be confused right now, like, because if you grew up going to church, especially if you come from a church tradition, that was non-denominational, like maybe Bible Church, American Baptist, Calvary Chapel, especially, or like charismatic, then you were probably taught that when Revelation talks about the last days or the last times, it's talking about the end of the world, right? The great apocalypse. Now, in our opinion, and I believe this is the Bible's opinion, and it's backed up by Bible scholars of multiple traditions over multiple centuries, that phrase actually refers to the time between the first and second coming of Jesus. Between Jesus coming back then and right now. What some Bible scholars call the now and the not yet. This tension where Jesus has risen from the grave. He's on his throne and the benefits of that, the victory of that, is experienced right now through the spreading of the gospel and the Great Commission in the churches, but is not yet fully realized. It's the now and the not yet. 
Now, I know some of you, you might want to fight me on this point, or you're thinking like, no, that's not what my pastor told me. And you're thinking like, no, he might want to fight me on that po- point, right? Because like people who have like all their little charts with the arrows and everything like that about the end times and all this like this convoluted mess, right? Gets really passionate about this for some reason. But look, man, if your interpretation of the scriptures is something that only became mainstream in like the last 100 years and is a novel view of the end of the world, just in the grand scope of church history, then I'm going to be suspicious of that, all right? Furthermore, we see elsewhere in the New Testament that the last times refers to the here and now, the time after Jesus ascended and before his second coming. Quickly, I'll show you a couple places in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. We saw this in our series on 1 Peter. It says that he, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Jesus was made manifest. In other words, the fullness of what he came to do, his life, death, burial, resurrection, right? Like that came in the last times to start the last times for the sake of you, me, sinners, The book of Hebrews kicks off with these words. It says, but in these last days, he, God, has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. So these are the last days, all right? This is the last time. Now, why does that matter other than like to have these like theological sparring games about like who has the right view of the end of the world, right? Like, or the book of Revelation. Like, why does any of this matter? It's because it's important for you to know, again, that Revelation 4 and 5 does not take place after the church age, but during it. Revelation 4 and 5 doesn't take place after Revelation 2 and 3, but during it. What's revealed about God in chapters 4 and 5 is true during the first century and is still true today. This is about our time. The glory of the throne that we're going to read about isn't about some future, like, heavenly reality. This is what it's like right now. This is what it's like right now. From here on in the book of Revelation, over the next several chapters, what we see is a heavenly vantage point that more fully explains what's going on behind the scenes today. And it's important for you to know that the throne of God is not empty today. Jesus sits on that throne. Might help to think about it like this. If If you're watching like a football game, what do you see, right? Like imagine you don't know anything, but like I know minimal about like the intricacies of football, right? Now imagine that you know nothing, right? Like when you're watching a football game, what do you see? You see these players lining up, you see them running into each other, pushing and pulling, grabbing one another, throwing them to the ground, like it's complete chaos, right? You're like, what is going on? But if you were escorted to the sidelines where the coach is riding down plays, and calling them out and calling people in and sending them out, right? Then all the chaos starts to make more sense, right? And that's what's happening here. John, after reading all the mess that we read about all the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, he's now bringing us over to the sidelines. He's given us a different vantage point from which we can see the different plays 
And we might not fully understand it all, but, but we do know this, that there is a throne from which everything is controlled. I want you to look at what Jesus says again at the end of verse 1. He says, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Notice the word must is being used there. And this gives us a glimpse into what we might call the doctrine of divine predestination. That word must is one of John's favorite words in the whole book. Uh, he says it over and over again, and, and every time it appears in, in, in the book of Revelation, it's almost always said by Jesus. And this is significant because he doesn't say, let me tell you what might take place, right? Like, I don't know, this might take place, it might not. It doesn't say that this will take place, like Jesus just foreknows, like he's this fortune teller that, you know, like, this is going to, he's not involved in it, but he knows what will take place. And he says, no, this will take place. No, he says this must take place. That word must makes all the difference. Because it tells us that the way that these things will happen is by the foreordained will of God. Nothing happens, nothing happens outside of God's good and perfect will. And again, this is something that we might not always understand, but we can always trust the fact that he is good. The fact that he's in charge. And some of us, we don't like that because we're like, no, I don't, I, don't like, I don't like believing this about God because then that means that all the, all the suffering and all the evil in the world, he's somehow responsible for, right? Like, if there's so much evil, if there's so much death, like, all the horrible things that I've been through, or my family member, or my friend, or my neighbor, like, all of these things, like, if God is, if nothing really happens outside of his good and perfect will, then what the heck? You know, why did these things happen? And look, man, I get that. I get that. I'm not saying that this doctrine is, without, is, is not without it's mysteries, that it's not without it, some tensions that we feel there. But what's the alternative? What's the alternative? That God isn't in control? That his will somehow could be thwarted? That when something bad happens, is that God could have done something, but he chose not to? I think we have to deal with the tensions of these, of these doctrines by just receiving what the Bible says, that God is on his throne, that his will is good and perfect. And I don't always fully understand how that reconciles with, with evil and sin and, and suffering and human responsibility. But I'm just going to have to humbly admit that, hey, maybe my creaturely mind is a little too small to fully comprehend the things of God. The fact of the matter is this throne is a picture of God's perfect sovereignty, his good and perfect rule, which can never be thwarted. And just to be clear, the sovereignty of God isn't highbrow theology, right? It's very practical. The spirit of our day says, I don't want to think, man. I just want to feel. 
I just want to feel, right? Like this, this, this sovereignty talk sounds too big, right? I want something that just, I can feel that moves me. But the sovereignty of God is not some doctrine that you can afford, that we can afford to live without. It's not a paradox for philosophers to argue about. It's a soft pillow for an anxious and a weary head. And for the Christians who are receiving the book of Revelation, the letter of Revelation, to Christians who are under the threat of persecution and martyrdom, this is a doctrine that they can rest in. And so God, he is a sovereign king. Number two, his glory is indescribable. His glory is indescribable. Let's quickly look at verse two and verse three. John says that once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Now what? is he saying here? Like, what in the world is he trying to say with all these images of, and, and colors, right? Remember, the book of Revelation and what John is writing is considered apocalyptic literature, all right? What that means is that he's using illustrative words, creative images to convey in, just inconceivable truths. Quick example for us. Is that years ago, um, I was sitting with an old friend of mine. And when I say he was an old friend of mine, like he was literally old, right? Like you've ever heard me talk about Pastor Bill before. He was like 92 years old when I was sitting down with him. And at this one point when we were sitting down, he was uh, talking to my wife and I about this new computer that he got that he was just so stoked on, right? It was called the WOW computer because old people look at it and they're just like, wow, you know? Like this thing is amazing, right? Like he could hardly, uh, he, there was a lot of things that he couldn't do, but this, this computer was made uh, for somebody that was in, in his um, age, somebody that was in, the, in, in, in their 90s to be able to surf the internet and do research and stuff like that. And he was talking to me about how he loves to randomly run across sermons from his favorite living preacher, uh, who was John Piper. And I was telling him, I was like, dude, Pastor Bill, did you know that John Piper, he's got his own ministry and his own, his own website, right? Like, you don't have to randomly run across it or, or open an email from somebody, right? Like, like, you can go to his website and download his sermons. And he's like, now, Chris, you used the word website. What is that? I was like, oh, man, how do you explain? He's like, well, you know, it's like this thing on the internet. And like I was trying to explain to him like what a website was. And he's like, no, Chris, you used another word, internet. What is that? I'm like, how do you not know it? Like I figured like he, he's got kids and grandkids and great grandkids. Like how does he not know? what the internet is. And I started to think, like, how do you even describe the internet to a man who doesn't know what a website is, right? I try to think of categories that he would understand, right? Talk about using words like information, computer. Obviously, he knew what that word meant, right? Because he just got one. He was really excited about it, right? Electricity, <laughs> data, right? Like, I was trying to think of words that he might understand, just trying to reverse engineer, like, describe to him what the internet is and what a website was. Now, my point is, then, how does one describe 
the throne room of God. How does somebody describe the throne on which God sits? How do you describe a perfect God who's more magnificent than the most beautiful sunset? More spectacular than the stars whose wisdom is greater than a million Wikipedias. A God who's more loving than a perfect mother or father. How do you describe a God like that? The point is you can't. You can't, and so you do the best you can to, do, to use images and analogies. You can't possibly explain it in full because the second that you do, he ceases to be awesome. Like the Wizard of Oz. Once you remove the mystery, once you remove the transcendent, you're suddenly unimpressed. And the thing is, with God, it's not even possible to remove the mystery. And so what John sees is his truly indescribable. And so because it's indescribable, he uses apocalyptic language describing infinite realities with these earthly images. So look at verse 2 again. He says, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Now this is the first picture that we see of victory in Revelation. The book as a whole will describe layers and layers and layers of thrones, but there is one throne, one throne that sits above them all. All the judgments of God that we're going to read about from chapter 6 on are going to issue forth from this throne. And if someone, John says, is sitting on this throne, I want you to look at how this someone is described. Verse 3 says, He who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Notice the words he uses to describe God in his throne. There's no facial descriptions, right? He doesn't say he who sat on the throne has a long flowy beard. There's no physical descriptions. It doesn't say that he who sat on the throne He's got buys and tries that would make Olympus blush. Michelangelo, he nailed it, right? No, there's complete lack of physical description, and I think that's intentional. It's intentional because what he's describing here is not any mere creature. Calvin says that, John Calvin says that it's like he's using baby talk to come down to our level. There are no human words that could help us comprehend this glory. And so John uses apocalyptic language to basically tell us, like, man, he's just, he's like brilliant stones. What you need to know is that these three stones he mentions, jasper, carnelian, and emerald, are what we might call translucent. You know what translucent means? It means that light shines through them. Light not only shines through them, but light shines brilliantly through them. And jasper back then is not like the jasper that we have today, all right? A jasper today is greenish, brownish. It's opaque. Is it opaque or opaque? Opaque, thank you. Um, in Revelation 21, though, we see um, what they called jasper is, is named again, and it's described as something like crystal or ice. 
in Revelation 21. And so their jasper was more like our diamonds. All right, now carnelian is this reddish color that when light shines through it, it looks like this smoldering fire. And it says that a rainbow appeared around the throne that had the appearance of an emerald, which again, if you think of the Wizard of Oz, emerald is green, bright, shiny, it's magnificent. So what is John getting at here with these descriptions? There's a hint from the Psalms. One psalmist says that God wraps himself in light like a garment. And in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says that God dwells in unapproachable light. See, the jewels listed here in Revelation 4 are doing what jewels were designed to do, just to magnify the light around it. In this case, to shine the radiance of God's holiness. He is the glorious one. Lastly, we see number three, and not only is his glory unmatched, but his majesty is unparalleled. His majesty is unparalleled. Read verses four through six with me. This is the rest of our passage. It says, around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on those thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with gold crowns on their heads. And from the throne, that's the main throne, came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And so what we see is that as verse 4 starts, John's vision zooms out a little bit more so that we're not just looking at the throne, we're now looking at the throne room. We're looking around the throne. He zooms out further to see what is around this great throne. And what we see is that this throne is at the center of everything. It's at the center of everything. Not, it's not a person who's at the center of everything. It's not a nation that's at the center of everything. It's not a king or a politician or a political party. But the throne of the living God is at the center of all creation and all heaven. Man, if you take your cues from most modern American evangelical teaching, then you might be excused for thinking that we sit at the center of the universe. That America is at the center of God's plan. And that God's gaze is fixed on us. But that's not the vision that John sees here. It's actually better than that. It's much better than that. It's much more hopeful than that. Nothing in all creation comes close to the center of this throne. All people, all creatures, all nations, all kingdoms, they all revolve around this throne. And again, he uses, John uses apocalyptic language to describe what surrounds this throne. Let's walk through them quickly. Looking at verse 4 again, he says, Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And so the first thing we see is that this throne has its own royal entourage. Right? You know how whenever like someone important 
makes this public appearance. They're, they're never alone. They're always rolling deep. It's a way of marking their rank, marking their uh, position. And these 24 elders are angelic beings. Elsewhere, they're described as the heavenly counsel of God. And it's not because God needs the counsel. It's a way to depict to us, a picture of us, of the difference between us and God's throne. That there's so many layers of elders and authority between us and, and him. Quick example, when, when I wrote my book on the fear of God in 2012, um, my, my publisher uh, asked me to gather some endorsements, right? And so I started being like, oh man, I didn't know I had to do that, right? And so I like, I like started thinking like, well, who, who in the world would like endorse my book, right? And so I started listing sort of like my ideal list of people who would endorse the book. I started emailing some of my living heroes in, in the faith. And what would often happen is I, I send an email through a website, right? And someone responds to me and says, hey, like I'll connect you to, to this person in this department. And I start emailing back and forth with, with them, and, and then it sends me to this other person, right? And eventually I get sent to that person's assistant who says, like, yeah, you know, uh, so-and-so can't, uh, I, I don't think right now by, by the timeline you need, I don't think we can, he, can, he can read your, your draft, but, but let me send this to our executive director. He might be able to, to and at that point I'm like, I'll take it, Right? Give me executive director's uh, endorsement, and, and I will be more than happy to receive that. And the point is that God is surrounded by so many positions of even heavenly authority that even his entourage is important themselves. Even his entourage are awesome themselves. They're described as, as, as br wearing brilliant white they have their own golden crowns on their heads. They've got their own set of thrones that they sit on. The point is to give us an image of the distance between us creatures and the throne of this creator. He continues in verse 5. He says, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. You see, long before the days of the first nuclear bomb, there was no greater display of raw energy than nature unleashed than a lightning storm. Lightning storms are terrifying, especially when you're right under them, right? That's why there are so many like primitive Mediterranean religions that have like gods of thunder at the top of their hierarchy. This phrase, flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder, that phrase is significant in and of itself. It actually appears three other times in the book of Revelation, also in chapter 8, chapter 11, and chapter 16. And in each of those places, the phrase appears at the conclusion of great judgments from God. You see the judgment of the seven seals, and at the end of that, Boom! Flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder. Then after that, you read about the seven trumpets, and then boom! Then after that, you read about the seven rolls 
or bowls of, of wrath. And then, flashes of lightning, peals of thunder. It's almost like flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder are like a great, divine, supernatural exclamation point. And what's significant about that is that right here in chapter 4, we actually discover the very source of those rumblings. Chapter 4, verse 5, literally says, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. In other words, the one who sits on this throne is responsible for all those heavenly displays of greatness that we're going to hear about again and again and again. Verse 5 continues and says, before the throne were set burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, we don't have time to get into this fully, but we have mentioned this before. But because of some Old Testament passages like we read about in Zechariah and other places, we know that the seven spirits of God, that phrase, is just an apocalyptic way of describing the all-sufficient Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. This is John's way of saying that before the throne of God, is the all-sufficient Holy Spirit, the one through whom God's eternal purpose will be established in this world. There's a reason that at Pentecost, when Jesus ascended on high and sent his Holy Spirit down, there's a reason that why at Pentecost that the symbol of the Holy Spirit coming down was that everybody had these tongues of fire floating above them. The fire signified the Holy Spirit is here now. The Holy Spirit is upon you now. Why is this significant? Because these early Christians receiving this letter are probably wondering, how will the gospel possibly overcome the shadowy power, the overshadowing power of Rome? How will the gospel overcome the power of our culture? You might wonder today, how could the gospel possibly overpower these competing messages? Through the lamp of God's spirit. That's how. The spirit who exists at the foot of the throne. The point is this, that the king who sits on this throne lacks no thing. He lacks nothing. This king depends on no one. The God who rules all heaven and all earth does not need us. This is not a picture of a God who, who saved us and loves us and welcomes us into his family because he's relationally codependent and in desperate need of somebody to love him back. No, he doesn't need anything. He doesn't love us and save us and make us his family in order to be fulfilled in and of himself. He does that as an overflow of the fact that he's already sufficient in and of himself. He lacks no thing. He doesn't need us. He's the all-sufficient spirit. And lastly, verse 6 says, before the throne... There was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. 
Now, to know, understand what's being said there, it helps to know that some of the most well-known Old Testament passages of God's throne are found in, in Exodus and in Ezekiel. And in the book of Exodus, when Moses and the elders are given a vision of God's throne, it says that under God's, they're looking up at God's throne, and it says that under his feet was pavement that was clear as the sky. In other words, that there is something that separates God above all creation below. Later on in the book of Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel describes the throne of God, and he says that there are four living creatures that are worshiping God. And above these creatures is this canopy. And this canopy is like ice. And above that canopy is God's throne. Again, it's a picture of the separation between the creator and the creation. And now, in the last book of the Bible, Revelation, chapter 4, we have a similar vision. But instead of looking up, John has been transported to the door of this throne room, and he sees, not vertically, but horizontally, what God's throne looks like. And John sees the same separation, like glass, all around the throne. The point is this. There's a gap. There's a space. There's a separation, metaphysically, between God and all other creation. He's not just somebody who's a long journey away. He's completely transcendent and wholly other. We can't get to him. The chasm is too big to be bridged. The sea of glass is too broad to be spanned. And no creature can do that. No creature can get through that space. It's too big. But the creator can. Only God can. You think you're self-sufficient? You're not. You're not, because you can't get through that space. And you're in desperate need of mercy and grace, whether you're willing to acknowledge that or not. The greatest need that we all have, the very reason that none of us can say that we're sufficient in and of ourselves, is because our greatest need is to bridge that gap, to be reunited with the God who made us. And you and I have no hope for that in and of ourselves. The good news of the gospel is that God has bridged that gap for us. He, knowing that we could not make it up to him, came down for us. He, the creator, wrote himself as a character in our story. Jesus came in the form of not only a human, but the form of a servant. Set aside his divine privileges to serve us, to put on flesh so that he could live the life that you and I could never live, so that he could minister in all power and victory, so he could die on a cross in our place 
and for our sins. So that through his triumphant resurrection, through his victorious resurrection, those of us who receive him by faith through grace can sit at his table. Sit among him as his brothers and sisters and be welcomed to the forever family of God. The apostles saw an emerald rainbow at the throne of God. Where else did we see a rainbow in the scriptures? The days of Noah, right? When God judged the world, judged humanity by flooding the earth. Before his people, when that flood came, for his people, he delivered them. And what was the sign of this mercy that he showed them? A bow that he set in the heaven. Which is interesting because a bow is a weapon of war. And so it's almost like God saying, look, I'm setting up my bow. I'm never going to judge humanity like this again. I'm never going to flood the earth again. Does that mean that God will never again judge the earth? Not entirely. It tells us that there's a day coming. We saw on the chart the second coming of Jesus, when Jesus will come to bring a final judgment. God will judge all the living and all the dead at that point before he ushers in the new heavens and new earth. And he's going to pick up that bow again. But instead of bringing down the water, he's going to bring down the fire. Final judgment will be poured out. Before his children, there's a sign of that rainbow. The ark of Jesus Christ. We're reminded that for us, the war bow has been hung in heaven. That for us, when the fire of God comes down, we will be spared because Jesus absorbed that fire in our place. You see, the throne room of God is a place of glory and splendor and majesty and trembling. But for God's people, for God's people, it's a place of grace where that bow reminds us of mercy and grace we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. The only proper response for us is that if you don't belong to Jesus, you repent and run to him. Knowing that there's nothing you could do to get through that space, but that Jesus has done everything for you by coming and living, dying, and rising in your place. For those of us who do belong to him, the proper response is to continuously surrender to him. Offer your life to him. Lay down your dignity and your worth to him. Turn your ears deaf to the competing messages of the culture and receive the word of life in the gospel of Jesus. And lastly, especially, to just worship him. We worship before this throne. 
Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.